the longer that we don't have a plan in place for cutting emissions at the scale that we need to in this country, the more that there's a vacuum that's filled by the, you know, the kind of bad faith actors, the naysayers. Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free-thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. If the carbon crisis is humanity's biggest test, then Chris Stark is the exam board and the examiner. As chief executive of the Climate Change Committee, he is responsible for setting the national carbon budgets and then reporting back to all of us on how the government is doing. In June, the committee published its latest progress report in which it praised the government's ambition on setting targets, but warned that time was running out when it came to delivery. Chris Stark, welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast. Thank you so much for that introduction. I'm very glad to be here. Great. So let's start at the beginning. How on earth do you go about setting a national carbon budget? It sounds the most incredibly difficult thing to try and achieve. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I've been in this job now for coming up for four years, and I had the same question when I came into this job. And um, it's it turns out it's actually quite difficult. So it's, um, uh, it's a huge That's a shock. process. <laughs> it's a huge process. Uh, to build, um, in effect, uh, bottom-up in every sector of the economy, an appraisal of um, the options that we have ahead of us to cut emissions, and then to understand how that can play, play out towards a kind of long-term target that is prescribed for us by Parliament is the kind of key challenge for us. Now, just, I'll briefly explain that. So what we do is we look at across a set of sectors. Um, start with the power sector. Uh, we have the transport sectors. Uh, the buildings sector, um, uh, industry. We also look at waste and we look at the natural world, land use and uh, the natural world. And then we try and build an appraisal in each of those sectors of our, our options to, to, um, to, to um, reduce emissions, to abate carbon, and try and find a way of constructing a scenario that takes us all the way to the long-term target that Parliament has set, which is now a net zero target by 2050. So what we're doing there is kind of looking at the options that we have in each sector to cut carbon, playing into that, the idea that we have to do that in a relatively cost-efficient way, and, and ultimately trying to bring ourselves to a, a path that takes us all the way to the long-term goal, and do that. And the, the last part is that that's got to be integrated. So we've got to, we've got to have a kind of a set of integrated steps that take us through those, those, those abatement options that we've got. So that process is how we build a carbon budget. We look in each sector at building a bottom-up set of scenarios, uh, almost starting afresh, which is what we did in, uh, in, in the whole of last year, is kind of building up that, that, that new scenario for how you cut carbon. And then we try and link together those sectoral stories so that they make sense, crucially, so that we've got a power sector that can deliver the decarbonised electricity that you might need for transport in the future, for example, or uh, a hydrogen sector that can deliver the low carbon hydrogen you might be using in industry or in transport or in heat. And that that's a kind of iterative process. And eventually what we end up with is a, is a full pathway to net zero, which we then use to give our advice on the on the carbon targets that the Parliament sets. I, d I don't think this was just to flatter the transport sector because you're on a transport podcast. I noticed that we were the transport sectors, whereas quite a few of them were transport were, were individual sectors. What, why do we get two sectors? How, do, how, how are we categorised? Well, you've got a few sectors in there. So we've got, I mean, very broadly, we look at surface transport, um, we look at aviation and we look at shipping. 
Um, and the aviation and shipping sectors are often separated out uh, because they are international um, and cover a kind of quite different set of issues from the surface transport sector. Now, the surface transport sector is, to my mind, the most important sector because it is the single largest uh, emitting sector in in the UK and in our modelling. So it accounts for about somewhere between a fifth and a quarter of total UK emissions at the moment. So so it's 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 the sectors because we have a different outlook in, in each of those challenges. And it's also one of the only ones that hasn't fallen, isn't it? I mean, if you look at the historic performance, actually Britain's been a you know, global leader in an awful lot of areas of carbon reduction, but transport's been the big gap. No- nothing has really changed over decades, I think. That's exactly right. It's a stubborn uh, a stubborn uh, story, a stubborn uh, sector to change. Uh, what is, what's interesting is that the headline on surface transport emissions is that they've largely flatlined since 1990. That's the that's the basis that we that we we use for a lot of the um, work that we that we do. Uh, but within that, there's a huge amount of change. You've got you're going to kind of different sorts of vehicles now on British roads. Uh, tend to be larger vehicles. We're doing much more on the road than we used to. Uh, and especially recently, things like you know the last last kilometer delivery that we that we all make use of for with with um, with Amazon deliveries has had an, an impact on on the, the number of journeys and the distance travelled on roads. But the reason it's flat is because cars and vans have become much more energy efficient, much more fuel efficient over time. So you've got you've got a lot of change uh, happening beneath that line, but it is a flat line. So you know the the, the climate doesn't care about any of that. It just sees. Uh, the emissions and, and the impact that that has. So we've become really good at cutting emissions, but instead of banking those emission reductions, we're reusing them to do more and more exciting stuff, which is great for lifestyle, but not so great for carbon, carbon reduction. I think that's that's quite a good way of, of putting it. Yeah, we've we've become much, per per vehicle much more efficient in the way that we use those fossil fuels, but we are just travelling more. Um, so, and a lot of that is passenger car journeys. You know, they're they're about they're about two fifths of the of the kilometres travelled um, on British roads. Now, one question I've got as someone who quite I quite like sort of price incentives for things. So, specifically in the world of transport, I'm I'm always banging on about road pricing because I just think that seems such an obviously good idea. But actually, if you take it one step up, you you guys put all this effort into creating a carbon budget. Um, it feels like the hard work towards setting a carbon price. Why don't we have a carbon price? Well, the reality is we have lots of carbon prices, and I and I essentially I agree with the premise of your question because there there isn't a clear signal in the form of a, a high carbon price. But we have carbon pricing by the back door in a host of ways, and I'll be honest, it's a mess. So it's it's um it's very difficult to see. Uh, with clarity, what needs to be done on uh, if you're a consumer, because it will depend on the activity that you are uh, that you're participating in, or the sector that you're in, or the or the place that you live. You know, those are all those things play into into a, a, I think a mess of incentives for citizens and consumers in this country. Uh, you see that quite obviously in fuel duty revenue. Now, fuel duty is a carbon pricing tool of sorts. It's supposed to put a, a higher price on. Um, on the on the uh, that on the on the on the the fuels that we use for transport than we would otherwise pay. So in that sense, it is a carbon pricing mechanism, but it's not a very clear one, and it hasn't changed for a very long time. So you can be the chancellors now for progressive have, have, have consistently now for a number of years kept it at the same level because they're worried about the politics of changing it. The interesting thing for me 
and I'm sure we'll get into this in the discussion, Thomas, but the interesting thing for me is that we are on the cusp of a big technology shift when it comes to um, uh, surface transport as we move from fossil fuel vehicles to probably battery electric vehicles progressively. And that is going to create a huge uh, fiscal risk, as the Chancellor might call it. So we've got he, 28 billion reasons to worry about that if you're in the if you're in the, <laughs> the, the treasury at the moment because that's the the revenue he gets from 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 the fuel duties now from my perspective this is creating a a, a good moment to, to actually think strategically for the first time in a while about all of this stuff so road pricing may well come into view as a more solid basis for raising money from the uh, you know the transport uh, sector but that's a controversial topic Many years ago, I used to work at the Treasury, and in fact, I worked in the transport spending team. And I'm I'm fairly sure there was a uh, not a metaphorical dusty folder on a desk, but a real folder on a desk that said road pricing. The Treasury has for a long time thought about road pricing, but has never felt able to implement it. It's always, I mean, economists love it. It's a much more efficient way of taxing transport. And yet we haven't pulled the trigger on implementing it. And that's because it carries with it a whole host of political challenges. And uh, so it's going to be one of the most interesting things to see if the Treasury now moves towards um, uh, road pricing as an alternative basis of taxation, or whether it looks to try and tax the electricity as a fuel in the way that um, it presently taxes diesel and petrol. I mean, they're not going to let 28 billion vanish from the exchequer, are they? That's, that, that option doesn't exist, surely. No, and I don't think they should. I mean, I, there's always a question about what the appropriate revenue to raise is. Uh, you know, the fascinating thing with transport is it's, it is one of the key drivers of the economy. So there's you know, always a sort of drag that comes with taxing it. But the potential with road pricing is that you can do that in a much more efficient way. This is why they, they, this is why the economists get very excited about it. Road pricing is a kind of economist wet dream. You know, this kind of, you, can really, you can really have an efficient basis for taxing transport. And of course, it's blind to... Um, the, the fuel that's being used for that transport, which is why it works better in a world where um, you know those fuel taxes on fossil fuels are dwindling. And if we don't have something like road pricing, I was talking to Gillian Annabel um, a few weeks ago from the Institute of Transport Studies in Leeds, and I asked her, you know, what is, what actually is the carbon saving of a electric car against a petrol car? She said, yeah no one really knows and but depending on what assumptions you use it could be anything from 15 percent saving up to 75 percent saving but what's interesting there is it's certainly not 100 percent, however you define it and actually if you take away all of the taxation associated with travel usage you could end up incentivizing a lot more journeys and doing exactly what we've been doing since 1990 couldn't you and you're recycling those savings those efficiency savings and carbon into more trips, more journeys, and actually, therefore, we don't really save the save the overall net carbon emissions and get to net zero. Yeah, I mean, I think that's it's certainly a risk, but I think it's probably an overstated one. I mean, there is a huge difference on whatever basis you look. There's a difference between uh, internal combustion engine vehicles and electric vehicles in their in their emissions. The direct emissions from the tailpipe obviously is an enormous difference, but then life cycle emissions there's a big difference too. Um, the operational emissions account for just under 90% of petrol and diesel cars total life cycle emissions. So that's basically what, what does that mean? That means that the burning of the petrol or the diesel 
is 90% of the life cycle emissions. It's much, much less uh, with a battery electric vehicle, even if you assume quite a dirty power grid um, and assume that the car itself has quite a high carbon associated with its production. Now, we know that most of the manufacturers are not going to be producing dirty um, dirty vehicles in terms of the production emissions associated with those materials. And we also know that in the UK, the, the grid is is progressively getting much, much greener um, uh, over time, and we expect that to, to, to power on. So there's a more marginal question about in some countries that are still very heavily, heavily dependent on fossil fuel electric grids. But even in those countries, battery electrics uh, look good. So I think the point you make in your question is the key one. We, get, we can't get to a world where you know, we, 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 are, we are increasing our demand for road transport um, and seeing all the congestion problems that come with that. Also, the particulate problems, which don't go away entirely with battery electric vehicles in towns and cities. We need to think about the, in the round a set of things that go with that transition to electric vehicles and zero carbon vehicles um, uh, that, that change, I suppose, our, our, the way in which we view transport generally and how we consume it and how we move around more generally. It's, um, I, for me, that's what's exciting about all of this. And do you think that's where we are at the moment? I mean, I was reading the government's transport decarbonisation plan recently, and it put quite an emphasis on the fact that actually we don't need to change our behaviours that much. And you know, we can carry on. I think it, it, there was a pretty much direct quote that said we can carry on doing what we do at the moment, but in electric cars. Um, and there's still a you know, £27 billion investment in road travel, though they, they highlight that includes a lot of maintenance as well as new roads. But there certainly are a lot of new roads being uh, built, um, including effectively duplicating a section of the M25 east mm. of London. Um, does does the transport decarbonisation plan go far enough in terms of achieving transport decarbonisation, do you think? Well, I, 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 it's hard to say that it goes as far as I might like it to, but it goes, it goes a long way. I mean, I, I must say I'm pretty pleased with the way that the transport decarb plan has come out it's pretty amazing to see uh dft producing a plan like that so i sort of i, I need to kind of pinch myself and, and make sure that i've got the context right on this one of the reasons why i think it's a good plan is because it's not just about the technology it does include uh something at least on limiting traffic growth we would say it could be more there could be more on that um uh, the existing ambition that, that, that was already in place prior to the, 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 the new plan from DFT, which was, which was only set out in 2020, but that still feels like a long time ago, um, hasn't been raised by the new plan. But there is a recognition that, that more needs to be done to limit traffic growth. And um, that in particular, the, the thing that caught my eye was that, that the, there's a commitment to increase car occupancy by 2030 which is a new thing for the DFT to talk about. So that, that idea that you want to put more people in cars rather than put more cars on the road. Uh, that wasn't much detail in how that will be achieved, but it's really good to see them talking that way about it. Um, and then the other part of it, I mentioned this earlier, the kind of last mile deliveries, last kilometer deliveries, which are really kind of uh, a notable change in their transport system over the, over very recent years. Uh, it talks about e-cargo bikes, use of... Um, uh, what they call urban consolidation centers, which are ways to kind of reduce um, the traffic in towns and cities that's delivering all the stuff that we're now buying on Amazon and other places online. That's really good, I think. That, that's a, that, that kind of co combination of more of a focus on uh, getting us out of cars and, 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 and more of a focus on um, removing uh, the freight traffic from, from roads is, is great. 
And what about SUVs? I, one of the com- things that Gillian Annabel, when I spoke to her about, was was quite passionate about was that um, SUVs are a way in which we people are banking their carbon efficiency savings from vehicles and using them to get you know, bigger cars and bigger and bigger cars. And it, her view is we're not going to hit net zero. And she thinks the reason we're not going to hit net zero is some of the DFT's assumptions around the number of people upgrading to SUVs, which will still be being sold, petrol SUVs will still be being sold at the end of the 2020s. Um, and the the efficiency gap between the, the the level of fuel efficiency stated by the manufacturers of SUVs and the reality of their performance is actually very high. And she thinks that put those things together and we're just not going to be able to hit the target. Is this something that you've grappled with at the Climate Change Committee? Yeah, it's one of the other factors in that flat line that we talked about earlier with all the change that's happening underneath that flat line. One of them, one of them is that, that there has been such a large increase in, in, uh, in the, you know, the, the use and purchase of SEVs in recent years. Um, that's led to an increase in the average of new car emissions um, in recent years, which is not what we want to see, of course. Now, there's no plan to address that in this, in this strategy. So that does look like something that is a concern. I suppose it's not directly a carbon concern if those SUVs move to being electric. Um, so I've got to kind of, dis- kind of try and separate the issues a bit here, but I-, I would not want to see more large vehicles on British roads. And I do think that is, if I have a criticism, I have several criticisms of the decarbonisation transport plan, but that- that's one of them. It doesn't have a plan to address that large recent increase in SUV use. So that's uh, something I would like to see more of. Uh, that, that It's not clear to me quite how you would do that, but I suppose that takes me to one of my other concerns with the transport plan is that it's not very well lined up with some of the fiscal incentives that, that, that need to be in place from the Treasury. And, you know, that kind of idea of having a, a tax regime that uh, it pushes people towards certain transport choices is not very obvious in the transport plan because clearly the Treasury is keeping its cards close to its chest on that. So it feels like kind of half a plan there. Potentially some of the incentives for um, uh, smaller cars or SUVs uh, might come through the tax system in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something you presumably you you, you talk to the Treasury uh, on a regular basis, I'm guessing. And you know, exactly that, you know, we've seen that the decision on rail fares next year has been postponed, which makes total sense. You're putting up train fares by 5% in the run up to um, the, the the modal shift we need to see, never mind just getting people back on public transport. Yeah, not making that decision now, but it hasn't been made that it'll the train fares will be flat or go down. Road pricing, you know, we heard Rishi Sunak say something about road pricing in November last year, but then nothing's been said since. Um, so th- there feels like the Treasury, as you say, has is really keeping its powder dry, but not making active decisions. In the meantime, time is passing. Do you get a sense that the Treasury is going to come out and make some fundamental changes in transport economics, transport pricing, or not? Where, where, where do you think their head's at at the moment? Well, I think it's inevitable that they'll have to. I mean, one of the kind of interesting things for me is that the, the, the reason for this fiscal risk that we're talking about, this 28 billion quid risk that faces the Exchequer, is, is the Prime Minister. <laughs> so it's the fact that he has said, by 2030, we have to stop the sale of um, uh, petrol and diesel vehicles. Now that creates a, I don't really like this term, but I think it, in this case it probably fits, a burning platform for the Treasury. So what I expect from the Treasury, I mean, no guarantee that we'll see it, but what I expect from the Treasury is that they will lay out some principles and a plan 
for fiscal reform over the course of the next decade, such that the exchequer is protected by the time we get to that 2030 point. Now, importantly, it's not that we just kind of do nothing before 2030. The, the, the progress that I expect to see in the change of mix and vehicles, the sales of electric vehicles, it's going to be very rapid over the next few years. So in the next nine years, as we get to 2030, I think you're going to see some very dramatic change in consumer preference for zero carbon vehicles. And that means that I think that it's not that I don't think it's the case that the Treasury can simply say, well, we'll, we'll sit in our hands till 2030 and then we'll have a nice new tax regime for you. So I think it's inevitable that they'll, lay out, they'll have to lay some more imminent changes out. I don't know what they will be. I'll be honest. I do have regular discussions with the Treasury, but but the Treasury is very good at not discussing tax policy. There's probably very good reasons for that. I used to work in tax policy. I can tell you it would have been not a good idea for me to spend a lot of time publicly discussing the options that we we're looking at. You get all sorts of strange behavioural impacts when you do that. So I hope there is a team in the Treasury right now thinking fundamentally about the economics of transport taxation, because I think at the end of this, we could have a much better regime uh, for climate, but also for congestion. And this links to probably the, the certainly the headline criticism that the committee made um, in its most recent progress report, which was fantastic ambition. And yeah, I've read the transport decarbonisation plan. I've read the bus strategy. I've read the rail pipe paper. I've read the cycling strategy. And a bit like yourself, you know, I had to pinch myself with a lot of it. You know, this is a government that is by far the most explicit about wanting to reprioritize road space from cars to bikes to walking to buses than I've ever seen. But there is this gap between the, the, the very eloquent ambition and some of the detailed policy to make it happen. And that, from your committee's report, doesn't seem to just be a transport thing. Um, and I'm thinking about COP26, actually, and the fact that Britain's got this kind of global leadership role at the moment. And is there a danger that this behaviour sort of is is amplified out? The COP26 becomes an occasion for a lot of ambitious planning, but not actually the detailed implementation behind those plans to achieve net zero on a global basis eventually? Well, yeah, there's absolutely that risk. I mean, that's the very short answer to your question. And I, I think the other risk I might throw in here is that COP26 is... Um, is only as important as we want to make it. So I certainly feel it's important for the host of the COP to set out not just meaningful targets, but actually the plans and policies to meet those targets. Um, there'll be some bright spark in the Treasury number 10 questioning that right now, I'm sure. So, you know, these are difficult political decisions for any administration to take. Uh, I mean, I would always say it's better to take those decisions early um, but I mean, it, it's a question, isn't it, politically, whether the whether the prime minister wants to put the meaningful delivery plans and policies into place ahead of the COP. I think it would be much better if he did, because I think the COP would be better for it. I think having a presidency in, of the COP that can say, "Look, we are a major economy. We are committed formally to these targets to get to net zero and, and a very steep path to to cut emissions on the way to net zero." and we have put the policies and, and, and plans in place to deliver that. I think that is the best possible basis to be a credible host for those discussions. But, you know, it remains to be seen whether the, the, the political courage is there to do that. I suppose my other outlook on this is that I think a lot of the concern that you see playing out in the front page of some newspapers at the moment about the cost of this is overstated. So I think that the concern, the political 
jeopardy here is is probably less than ministers think. But the, the, the longer that we don't have a plan in place for cutting emissions at the scale that we need to in this country, the more that, that there's a vacuum that's filled by the you know the kind of bad faith actors, the naysayers, and this that, that and it, it becomes more and more of a political jeopardy for the prime minister and the chancellor and other ministers to fill. So, I I just think the quicker we get on with this, the better. I, I find the question around what is the actual political risk fascinating. And certainly looking at transport and, for example, road pricing, which we've already spoken about, you know, it is seen as, as politically toxic. And I'm I'm never quite convinced that it would be as bad as it's seen. And you know, we all know why it's politically toxic back in whenever it was, 2007, I think it was. You know, the Downing Street Petition website had just been launched. Peter Roberts, Drivers Alliance, first ever petition to reach a million people. And, you know... Well, I get all that. Um, but actually, if you look at how it would be perceived or lived by a lot of people, if you live in a rural area where you need to use your car, you will probably pay less because there would be no need to charge for journeys that have to be made and are going to be made and there's no incentive to produce them and there's no congestion. But if you live in a, an urban area where you've got fantastic alternatives, yes, you'll, you'll end up paying an awful lot more. Um, but those alternatives do exist. And indeed, we have a we have a conservative government at the moment, anyway, which have, which draws an awful lot of its support from rural areas. You'd probably see a, a driving price cut, but that probably wouldn't increase usage much because those people are already having to drive because they need to. And it, it feels to me a bit like one of those kind of a bit like you know, Sunday trading or gay marriage that were incredibly controversial until the minute they happened. But the minute they happen, everyone forgets they were ever controversial, and they're just how life always was. Do you know what I mean? I mean, aim into that. We should get you into number 10. I mean, I think that is exactly where I am on it too. I, I, the, the transport challenges are much less than other challenges that we face when it comes to net zero. So worth knowing that. I mean, I, I, it's worth just injecting a bit of the modelling at this stage because it's fascinating stuff. We've done it in, in, the, in the past three years. We've really changed our outlook on, um, on, on the transport sector when it comes to cutting those emissions. Um, we are confident that as you look across the economy, that, that the, 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 the plans that we or the, the, the advice that we've been given, at least uh, on, on cutting emissions in the transport sector, would be very successful, would be very achievable and crucially would be, would be money saving to the economy. So and that is that is a change in our outlook. It's a it's, but it's a change that other countries around the world are coming to as well. And the main reason for that is because you've got this combination of things happening to decarbonize the transport sector. You've got a bit of modal shift. Um, I'd love to see more, but crucially, this big technology shift as we move to battery electric. And then the, the the cars themselves and the vans themselves are much 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 more energy efficient. You can tell that because they don't heat up when you start them up any longer you know you could you can fry an egg in the bonnet of a car if you've been driving it a long distance you don't get that with an electric car because it's using the energy much more efficiently to turn it into to movement and the fuel for it is electricity which over time is becoming cheaper and cheaper as we generate it from renewable sources uh, and that is a that is a contested issue but it, it's very obvious from the auction data in this country and in other parts of the world that the electricity that we're going to be producing from um, from renewables is becoming cheaper and cheaper over time and will continue to do so as we build an energy system that's based around that. So that whole thing adds up to actually quite a significant saving to the economy. And as you say, Thomas, I, I happen to think that rural areas are, are, the, are, are probably the greatest beneficiaries of that. They also have the opportunity to charge those vehicles 
uh, off off street and uh, and very cheaply, especially if you're doing so off peak. So there's all sorts of reasons to think that rural communities who are right you know, rightly worried about this transition will in the end be the greatest beneficiaries of it if the, if, the, if, the, if the technology changes I've talked about and if the tax changes that we've talked about come into play. So I would love it if we had political leaders that were making those arguments more clearly because it feels a bit like we're having to sort of, it's, it's odd to have a quangle like the CCC make those arguments when fundamentally they're political arguments. They're, you know, that's, that's something we should be embracing um, politically. Um, but none of our political leaders are, are quite as vocal on this as they should be, I think. And as you say, it also feels it feels inevitable. Um, maybe, maybe it's not inevitable, but it feels inevitable if we're going to hit the, the the objectives. And the objectives are being very vocally stated politically by both parties and at all levels of government. And so, if if we if we're clear that we're trying to get to a certain destination, and there's something that feels an almostly inev inevitable part of getting to that destination, and the destination has cross party and um, na pan national within the UK consensus, then then it's 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 surprising the next step is is so hard to to reach totally agree and i think the other reason it's inevitable is that you, it doesn't matter what you think about climate change that, that clearly um fundamentally the the the, the 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 manufacturers of vehicles and countries around the world are orientating their plans towards decarbonized transport and there's a reason why Tesla is so valuable as a as a corporate. You know that it is about the future value of that corporate rather than the value today. Every single major car manufacturer is now looking at roughly that 2030 date as the point when they're going to stop producing those internal combustion engine vehicles, with with a few niche cases after that, of course. But um, I think we should be super confident that this is going to happen. It's more about capturing the value and the benefit from it than it is questioning whether it will happen at all. And then there's the question that always comes up, um, and hopefully you've got the definitive answer because you hear very a lot of different answers, which is the question about, you know, by 2030, will the grid be ready and will the grid be green enough? Um, and yeah, I, I, I haven't spoken to anyone from National Grid, but I heard them on the radio saying, basically, don't fuss, it's fine, it'll be all right. Um, and I hear other people saying, it's not fine at all. And actually, all we're going to do is push a whole load of carbon emissions out of transport into um, fuel generation instead, into energy generation instead. Uh, where, where are we going to be on a green grid by the time transport becomes electric? We will be fine, uh, definitively. I'm absolutely confident of that. It's not just National Grid that says it. I mean, we've looked at it. We think it. Um, none of the major utility companies are concerned about it. And um, the owners of the network assets are not concerned about it either. And the reason for that is, there is a there is a, a quite a lot of network investment that's necessary to get us to that 2030 day and beyond. Remember, it's after 2030 that we'll really start to to motor. Uh, you know, that's when by that point we'll really start turning over the stock of cars on the on on roads. Um, so that we have got time to plan for this. Um, so there is a certain amount of reinforcement of energy networks necessary by 2030. We'll be well on the way to a fully decarbonized electricity system. Our view in the CCC is that we can achieve that by 2035. So you're nearly there by the time you get to 2030. Most of that will be renewable, but you need a you need a sort of backup um, uh, to, to go alongside that and to complement that renewable generation for when the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine. That can be decarbonized as well, uh, either through carbon capture or or through hydrogen. Um, or hydro or ammonia, you know, something hydrogen based uh, as as your basis for generating electricity without the greenhouse gas emissions. All of that we know, and actually, 
again, pinch yourself because we weren't here even just a few years ago, but we know what to do on that. And the last part of this is the by far the most interesting part of this, which is that um, we certainly need more charging capacity and facilities and infrastructure across the country. We probably don't need nearly as much as some of the commentators seem to think we need. Um, uh, we all have the capacity to charge uh, cars. If you've got any ability at all to get power out to the road, then you can you can charge your car uh, at home. That is a factor that I don't think is, is is given enough credence at all in some of the future assessments. You know, and, and the other fact is that you're not going to be doing this every day, just as you don't take your car to fill up every day in the petrol station. So there's there's more than enough charging facilities as long as we build a few of the charging capacities and, and, and infrastructure that we need out on our main trunk roads. I think we'll be fine on that. And then the, the, the other the other part of it is the retail offer. And I think this is the thing that's just so exciting and interesting, and I don't claim to have any kind of foresight on this, but already you can see uh, companies like Octopus Energy moving towards a world where you, you know, you're giving a much stronger incentive for the owners of electric vehicles to charge those vehicles off peak when it's cheap, when the wind is blowing and demand is otherwise lower uh, for electricity. That's creating a whole set of new consumer offers that make, I think, electric vehicles much more appealing. Let me just add kind of one more thing to that. Imagine a world where... Um, we are moving progressively for towards electrical transport, but also electrical heat. Suddenly, you've got this kind of this position where all of your energy needs are electric, and that opens up another kind of aspect to this, which is really interesting. Which is, might we be moving towards a world where, as we have with mobile phones, as we have with uh, television recently we subscribe to that electrical service rather than paying per unit. You know, this idea that actually you just pay a flat fee uh, on behalf uh, and then on, on, on your behalf, someone does a bit of management of that energy system so that you get the kind of the most optimal outcomes. You get your charged car in the morning when you need it to go to work, but over the course of the evening and the day before it, it you know, that, that your utility company has decided when it's best to charge that car and to do so in, in a way that's cheapest to you as a consumer. That's fascinating absolutely fascinating and that is one of the sort of co-benefits i suppose of moving towards this net zero future is that you get brand new opportunities like that which i think will help the consumer um at least i hope they will and will make this even cheaper than the kind of uh, the, the kind of uh, uh, outlook that, that that we in the ccc have painted for the for the government so in that world you described just then for example, um, my electricity provider says, right, you know, I'm going to I'm going to recharge your fridge for, for, for 20 minutes to cool it off. Right. That's OK. Now, now I'm going to let you on your washing machine or yeah, I'm going to re put that. Now I'm going to heat the house for a few minutes and it all just happens in the background such that all those peaks and troughs, because my understanding is that electricity generation is a bit like transport, heavily, heavily, heavily um capacity oriented by peak capacity that those those peaks are all thinned out and we as consumers don't have to think about it is that is that roughly what, what you have in mind beautifully put so i mean the cost of the whole energy system is determined ultimately by how much infrastructure you need to deliver that peak so if you can shave anything off the peak then you're creating a lower overall cost to the system which which as long as those costs are shared around the consumers it creates a better outcome all around so we're into a world and where you're going to have more efficient um, vehicles on the road, more efficient devices using the, that that electricity, which is becoming cheaper and cheaper, and you are minimising the cost of the the capital kit that you need for the whole nation's energy system. 
Uh, and that factors in, I mean, you know, that that includes the, the fact that you, you do need extra capacity to manage those periods when the wind isn't blowing hard and you need something to top that up and to be flexible to deliver the demand. We, we add that into our modeling as well. And you still get to this world where we are saving billions if we are able to design an energy system that is able to be flexible and responsive to demand in the way that you described, Thomas. Now, some people might say, um, I don't want that kind of, uh, energy system. I don't want those choices taken on my behalf. And I think that's fine too. I think that what I'm saying is that there's the opportunity to introduce those kind of uh, offerings, which you wouldn't get unless you were moving towards that kind of zero carbon electricity based system that I think we will need to get to net zero. I mean, dizzyingly, that now means that not just I don't just need an electric intelligent car, I also need an electric intelligent freezer, an electric intelligent cooker, and everything. Um, so suddenly, you know, you're you're sort of sitting you're sitting atop this kind of extraordinary global empire in which everything needs to be refashioned to make this world work. Um, is it all? Is that all going to come true in time? Yeah, I think we're mostly there. <laughs> so I mean, remember, remember, this isn't this does not need to happen tomorrow, and it's really important to say that that kind of major part of our modelling. We started this discussion by talking about how we do the carbon budgeting and the and the, the technical modelling that, that underpins our advice. But but what that's based on ultimately is is a is a pretty central principle that we want to kind of minimise the disruption over the course of this transition. We want to go as quickly as we can, of course, but what's causing the greenhouse gas emissions? That we are responsible for in the UK at the moment is is the is the technologies and devices that we use today that burn fossil fuels. So what we want to do is replace those technologies and assets at the end of their useful life. So progressively, we want to turn over the stock of the capital, as we would call it, the capital stock of the whole economy. That's all the technologies and assets that we use today. We want to do that progressively so that as we come to the end of the useful life of your fridge, you replace it with something else that is smarter and is able to communicate with the with the energy system. As you come to the end of the useful economic life of your car, you replace it with a zero carbon car that is smarter and can and can engage with the energy system like that. I, I, I'm not worried about our ability to turn over those assets in the time that we need to to be smarter. Uh, what we need, of course, is the 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 the, 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 the energy market models that would allow to that, that, would, that would deliver us that kind of outcome that I've described to you, that much more smart energy system with the opportunity to introduce these new kind of tariff structures. And in that context, one of the things that you hear a lot about is the question of um, EV charging, electric vehicle charging, and whether A, oh my God, it's a wild west, the government needs to step in and organise it, or B, there's a whole load of innovation taking place and we need to let the market work out what the right solutions are. Um, where, where, Where do you kind of sit on this debate? Well, we haven't said too much about that. I don't mind giving my personal view on this, is because this is that you, you can. There's just where we'd like to be. I think is to set the appropriate set of standards such that that innovation is not held back, or in, in, in fact is encouraged. But there is a danger in setting the wrong standard too soon that then discourages innovation. We've had some experience of that in this country. That, that if you look at the DAB standard, for example, in digital radio, many commentators would say that we went too soon with that. And actually created a standard that was less uh, optimal. Uh, it was not quite the one that we wanted to have. You find in other other parts of the world that they have different digital services through the radio that um, that we don't have in this country because DAB was uh, a little early in its inception. But definitely, I think if you want to see smart charging, that's a very crucial one. Where you plug your car in, leave it, and those kind of 
decisions about when to charge, but crucially when also potentially to offer power to the grid and be rewarded for that, does require some sort of common platform. Um, rapid charging, the likes of which that we'll be doing in service stations on motorways in the future, does require a common standard to do the kind of really um, high wattage stuff. So I, I, I think broadly we've got this right so far in the UK is my take on it, that we were sort of heading now towards that common set of standards that would permit those things. And then it will be down to the market and the consumer to decide whether that, that's something they want. Uh, that, that is, it's quite a vexed question of whether, whether consumers do want that smart charging stuff, especially the question of offering um, vehicle to grid power to, you know, offering power from the battery in the car to grid. But I suspect they will in, in due course, because I think in the end, it won't be a conscious decision. I think it will be a question of whether you wanted to have cheap electricity powering your car or, or more expensive stuff. So I've got two final um, questions. Uh, the first is the one that all of us who don't understand the electricity grid inevitably think. So I'm going to ask it now, which is what is the answer for the days when it's not sunny and not windy? So this is a, it comes up so often and I understand why. Um, and, and indeed, there are days like that. There, there will be vanishingly few days like that and vanishingly short periods um, because of the extent of especially offshore wind production that we've got. It's, not, it's not, not often the case that we'd be producing no power from the offshore wind that is planned for the seas around the UK. And it's because we're, it's so bloody windy in this country. So, you know, that, that is one of the advantages that we have is that we can put this stuff in the sea and, can, and be confident that we can produce electricity. But there will be periods when it, when it, when it is less um, uh, obvious that we can produce all the power that we need. So we need something in addition to that, and I'm afraid it's not batteries, which is something that you, can, you might jump to if you haven't looked at the, you know, the power system modelling. We'll have a, I suppose, a combination of things in place. One is the thing that we've already talked about. We will have generation capacity that we can turn on when we need it. That capacity needs to be decarbonized, but I'm confident we can do that, and that looks very similar to gas power generation today. Um, so it, it's 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 a different gas. It almost certainly, it will be hydrogen or ammonia that we'd be burning, or to generate that electricity in, in peaking plants, or it will be gas with carbon capture. Um, so that's a big part of the analysis that we've done. Um, it adds cost, no doubt. You're adding a few pounds per megawatt hour onto the cost of the electricity that you can generate um, if you we didn't have a kind of renewables-based system. But renewables themselves are becoming so much cheaper that that makes that really makes sense. There is a, a quite a, a big role for storage in the round. That's the other big thing. So a bit of batteries, although batteries tend to be for the kind of short-term what they call frequency response, something you turn on quickly when you need it. Uh, the the medium-term storage stuff, there's a big question of what that would be, but in our modeling, it's hydrogen. So it's all the power that you, when you've got excess power production, you can turn that into generating hydrogen. You can electrolyze water, generate hydrogen and store that. You then use those reserves to generate electricity again. And then the last thing to say is that we have a lot on flexibility. So turning off devices that don't need to be on, so you mentioned fridges. Industrial fridges is a really good example of that. Actually, already you can there are contracts that big big corporates like Sainsbury's have to turn off refrigeration already at times of peak demand. So you might use that. And then the last thing is importation of power. So there will be countries that uh, are around the UK on the continent that have that still have excess power that we can use uh, again at a premium. 
And when you look at all of that, again, it's possible we think to um, to, to 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 construct an energy system that that works very well indeed. We will have nuclear. Uh, we will have um, uh, you know the, still even in windy windless days, we'll still be producing low carbon electricity uh, from nuclear. And when you add that in, it, it doesn't look like too much of a challenge in the round. And of course, one of the things I didn't realize until this conversation was, in effect, what you're describing there is using hydrogen as a battery because you generate the hydrogen from the peaks and then you use it again during the troughs. That's exactly uh, right. I, yeah, it's it's I it's quite it's, got that. it's it's and it's particularly the case as you as you start to grow the capacity from renewables and offshore wind, especially, which is the very kind of UK focused story. Other countries will have solar. Um, uh, we will have a lot of offshore wind, and as that capacity grows. Um, it becomes the case that there will be long periods when 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 too much power is being produced from that um, from that um, new capacity that you've built, and then you can flip that to production of hydrogen, as you say, uh, which is in effect what we have at the moment with pumped hydro storage. So uh, the hills of Scotland, where I am today, uh, th there are several locations where, when power is cheap. They reverse the pumps and push the water back up to the reservoir at the top of the hill. And then when you need the electricity, you flip it back and start generating again. And that's a very inefficient process, but it doesn't matter because you, it's, it, what you're creating is a, a kind of cheap source of electricity as and when you need it. And hydrogen is similar to that. Fantastic. And then my final question, and I feel almost guilty asking this because I imagine I'm exposing you to a world of pain from the last 18 months, but I've got to ask about the effect of COVID on your models. Um, because I imagine it must just be the most nightmarish, horrific situation. I mean, we're we're currently dealing with a world in which you know car use is back at a hundred percent. You know, rail has not yet hit sixty percent on a single day um, of where it was before. Uh, you've got to report back to Parliament on how Britain's doing and achieving its climate goals. And well, I mean, we're in this extraordinary world where all the assumptions have been thrown in the air, and no one knows where anything is going to land again. Um, other than cry, how, how on earth do you and your your committee deal with this? Well, as you would imagine, we we've had a very difficult period. Um, over the last eighteen months, we have uh, we have to produce. We had to produce for Parliament um, the next carbon budget advice, which was this major piece of work that we did in December last year, which essentially painted. Uh, a pathway all the way to net zero for for parliament and government in fact we did five scenarios for net zero um and on that line that we then recommended we we drew all the um targets that we thought felt parliament should set and they followed that advice it's really exciting to say that but the fact that it was happening during covid one of my team memorably said to me it's like painting a picasso in a force nine gale so you've got this kind of you're trying to you're trying to lay that out in a way that makes sense I can only say what we've done. So what we took a, I think, a sensible decision that in most sectors, we would assume a return to trend. Um, the one sector where we didn't uh, was aviation, where we assumed that it would not recover for four or five years. And that was based on the industry's assessment of demand. So you'll see that in the modeling. And of course, that buys you a bit of comfort in the carbon budget as well, because it means that we'll have lower aviation emissions than we would have had over that period. My own view is, of course, there will be enormous change um, uh, over and above that, uh, but it's extremely hard to predict. Uh, I think we will have more home working, but it's hard to say that that is definitely the case when we haven't really formally yet all returned to our offices. 
Um, and it's not clear that that will have the impact on transport emissions that many think it will, because we are using uh, road transport for leisure now more than we used to because we're at home. Um, and because, crucially, if you live in a city, you want to get out. So there's, it's, it, it, there's so many things that will come into play here that make it very difficult to predict. So on that basis, what we've done is not try to predict any of it and instead say that we will return to pre-pandemic trends. But I'm absolutely certain that this will come to be one of the most interesting periods in and, and one of the most you know dynamic periods of change that we've ever seen in the last 30 40 years when it comes to some of the issues that you and I've been talking about today and that makes it really exciting because I, I my own views I think it points towards opening up new opportunities to go even faster on decarbonization and on changing some of these things and, I, and my concern is that we don't lock in old practice and lock in our use of fossil fuels especially unnecessarily we should really be taking these opportunities to change and of course the most obvious of those opportunities is that we as a nation have been walking and cycling much more than we used to and it would be a disaster i think if we didn't capitalize on that in the next um in the next period particularly for cities i love this idea of 20 minute neighborhoods i absolutely love it this um, idea that you know you should be able to have a neighborhood that you can live and exist in work in um, and and get around in 20 minutes without using um, without using road transport. That's a hugely exciting thing. In my own neighbourhood in Glasgow, uh, which is a lovely place in the west end of the city near the university, um, I have never seen it so vibrant as it has, has been in the last 18 months because everyone's here. So everyone's now in the community, in the neighbourhood. I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one that's had that experience. So I think it'd be a crying shame if we didn't capitalise on some of that. Fantastic. Well, I wish you the very best in trying to work out what the future is telling us as it emerges. Um, but that was an absolutely fascinating conversation. I learned a lot. So thank you so much for joining me. I really, really appreciate it. And it's been great talking to you. Thanks so much for having me on. And that concludes the Freewheeling podcast for this week. Thank you very much indeed to my guest, the Chief Executive of the Climate Change Committee, Chris Stark. And thank you to you for listening. I'll be back with another edition of the Freewheeling podcast next week. Until then, goodbye.